Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to After the JAG Corps, navigating your career progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. This week on the podcast, part one of my conversation with Ross Boer, a former Navy judge advocate and founder and chief executive officer of Latitude, a legal services company that specializes in employing and providing attorneys, paralegals, legal operations professionals, and compliance officers to legal departments and leading law firms nationwide. Latitude has offices in Atlanta, Austin, Boston, Charlotte, Indianapolis, Miami, Minneapolis, Nashville, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and San Francisco. With that said, Ross, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Tom, we're glad to be here. Now, I looked at your LinkedIn profile in preparation for our conversation, and I noted two things about your career as a military attorney. First, it was short, as it looks like you did one tour before continuing your legal career as a partner in a civilian law firm and then doing a short reserve stint. And second, you packed a lot into that short period of time, serving in Japan, Kosovo, aboard an aircraft carrier in the Middle East. So tell us about your time as a Navy JAG. Yes, coming out of Naval Justice School, I started out as a prosecutor in Yokosuka, Japan. And so we covered matters in obviously throughout Japan and that part of the Pacific. I did a brief Gulf deployment out of Japan. And then I did a brief tour in Kosovo in a NATO role there with K4. And then I went straight from that role to the number two job on the USS George Washington. And so that was my active duty service. And then I did a brief stint in the Naval Reserve while I was in private practice. So when you left active duty back in, if I recall correctly, it was 2001, you then served 11 years with Bass, Barry, and Sims, which has offices I was seeing in Knoxville, Memphis, Nashville, and Washington. And again, your LinkedIn profile, it looks like you did a lot there, including standing up the firm's global anti-corruption compliance department and international investigations practice. And that looks like it took you around the world just as well. I lateraled in, you know, coming straight out of the Judge Advocate General's Corps and started out as a essentially a trial attorney working in the antitrust department. And so I focus more on the facts and depositions and the litigation side, as opposed to being a antitrust subject matter expert. But I ended up getting pulled into some interesting cases because I, I did have JAG trial experience. And so that was super helpful. Uh, I got to work on some really interesting cases. Then I started doing more complex litigation and then when it looked like there was going to be increased enforcement of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, I proposed to the firm, based on my international investigations experience in the JAG Corps, that the firm launch a FCPA practice group. And so did that. I thought my JAG experience and litigation experience totally tied in with that. It was a huge help and did that for multiple years until launching Latitude in 2013. 
before we turn to latitude, did you find a direct correlation between your experience doing, for example, investigations while on active duty on the carrier? Did that give you a leg up or give you an experience that was attractive to your civilian law firm that enabled you to do that? My impression was that my JAG experience was very appealing to the law firm. When I started out, I was being considered for a litigation position. And so the fact that I had been in court and that that would correlate to federal court in many ways and depositions and and trial prep. When I got to doing the FCPA investigations, I found it to be very helpful background doing international investigations and dealing with criminal matters, dealing with foreign authorities, both on the ship and when I was based in Japan. So I thought it translated very well. And my impression is that the the firm and clients would key off of that, that there was prior international experience. So that was helpful, I think. And then you mentioned you stood up Latitude. So what was the motivation in standing up essentially a headhunting company for lawyers when you have the successful law practice? Yeah, I was seeing a couple of things in the market. I'd wanted to go into business. In fact, when I was on the George Washington, I had considered two essentially next steps. One was starting a business. I literally ordered a book that had franchise opportunities. So I was looking at those. And then I also, at the same time, was interviewing for law firm jobs. And my thought was, if I could find a great law firm role, then I would go that route. I would move back to, in my case, you know, Nashville, where I wanted to relocate to and where I'd gone to college. And I would practice law for a few years, get some experience doing that, get plugged back into the community, and then I would launch a business. And so I had had an advertising company that I'd started when I was in college. And so I was always interested in doing something entrepreneurial. What ended up happening was uh, I got back to Nashville and met my wife, ended up having children, and all of a sudden, two or three years became more than a decade But then I had the opportunity to get into business. And so I'd been thinking of different business ideas and what I saw in my own practice and in the firm and with a lot of friends in firms across the country was several things. One, there's so many attorneys that have fantastic skills, but they don't necessarily have the interest in business development or that's not their gift. And so, so much of becoming a law firm partner, particularly an equity partner involves, you know, being able to build a book of business, but they're all these really skilled attorneys out there that just love practicing law. They're kind of like the surgeon who just wants to perform surgery and that's all they want to do. And so there weren't a lot of options other than practicing in a firm, which there's not a ton of boundaries or going in-house or starting your own firm, which obviously involves a lot of business development. So the thought is you've got all these specialist attorneys out there, and then you have a lot of attorneys that are dealing with the roller coaster of demand where you're slammed or you have quieter periods. And so there's always the tension of overstaffing and then being stressed about keeping your team busy. And so I was seeing those things that a lot of attorneys and firms face. And the idea was, what if you create a practice platform where fantastic attorneys can be employed, they can have the benefits that would be typical of a law firm or company, and they can then work on assignment to sophisticated law firms and legal departments on their own terms. And they're basically brought in on an as-needed basis. And so that that would be a, a new way of practicing. And there are other companies that you know, we weren't the first in this area, but the thought was that this would be a company that would serve both uh, large law firms, boutique law firms, as well as legal departments. And so timing was good and decided to seek investment and, and launch the company. And you obviously have grown. 
to all those cities that I mentioned before, and you've been doing this for nine years. So business must be okay, at least. Is that a correct assessment? Yes. I mean, this is an area that's really growing, not just for our company, but as a segment of the legal industry. It is an area which I think is great news for all attorneys at kind of all experience levels, because it's another way of practicing. Our company and others in our space are just another source of great roles for attorneys, whether it's permanent roles, fractional roles, part-time roles. It's just another way to practice that puts more options in the hands of attorneys who have in-demand skill sets. So it's an area of a definite area of growth, and we're hoping to continue to grow. And hopefully the segment continues to grow in the legal industry. So Ross, you you have the military experience, you know what we do, you know what we don't do. And building a book of business is not one of the things that we have to worry about in military service. You have done the civilian practice, so you know what the demands are out there. So I'm really intrigued by this because I think you are so uniquely positioned to offer counsel, to offer perspective on lawyers leaving military service and seeking employment in the civilian sector, whether it's trying to break into a law firm or trying to get into an in-house counsel position particularly among those who have stayed for a long time. So I would like you to talk about what you think are some of the advantages military lawyers bring to the table, as well as the challenges they have in getting there. And I think we talked before that there's a difference, not one size fits all in the sense that younger attorneys may have certain advantages over older JAGs who are leaving and vice versa. So that's about as broad as I can give you as an intro My impression is that the judge advocate experience offers a lot of benefits for both obviously the attorneys, but also potential employers post-service, whether it's law firms or companies. I think that it is typically, in, in my experience, like my current role placing attorneys in companies, that it is easiest to make that transition when an attorney is departing the service after a relatively few number of years, three to five years of experience, it's usually easier to make kind of a a more seamless transition straight into private practice, or at least that's definitely true, I think, of law firm practice. Uh, And obviously, there's exceptions to all of this that you can probably think of numerous people who've made a seamless hop straight in. But generally speaking, if someone is getting out after their first or second tour, it is easier to transition, particularly into larger firms, because they have kind of a very set stair-step structure. And a lot of larger firms are hiring people straight out of law school, you know, or straight out of judicial clerkships. And so if someone is coming in straight from an initial period of service, you know, three to five years or whatever it currently is, it's easier for that person to be slotted in almost like someone who has had an extended judicial clerkship. And that's what I experienced when I was transitioning in. I've seen that with multiple other candidates. But I think at all levels of experience, there's a tremendous amount of value that employers get in terms of the leadership, the maturity, the the trial experience. I think one of the biggest things that judge advocates bring to the table, particularly more junior ones, is they normally have a lot more trial experience than their civilian peers. And particularly in larger firms, it's increasingly difficult. And this has been a change that's happened out for the last 10 or 15, well, probably longer than that, 20 years. There's just fewer and fewer cases that go to trial, at least on the civil complex litigation side. And so 
the ability to have trial and litigation experience and investigations experience is a real advantage that attorneys have. I think to a certain extent, larger firms oftentimes are looking back to law school to assess a candidate, kind of like where that candidate fits in their typical profile. And so that can obviously be an advantage to attorneys who've done really well in school, probably carries more weight with a candidate who's relatively early on. But I think for more experienced attorneys, there's still obviously a lot of great opportunities to transition. It's just the need to tailor the attorney's bio and to really draw out the aspects of their military experience and to be able to explain them in a way that translates to where they're applying for a job. And that I think is important for candidates at all experience levels, but it becomes particularly important for more experienced attorneys, like a retiring 05 or 06, you know, that is rolling out because officers who've had that type of experience, it's a broad range. You know, they've been in multiple duty stations and a lot of times the military titles, for instance, are not going to translate to a civilian audience. They're not going to necessarily intuitively recognize the degree of responsibility, the scope of duties and so forth. Yeah, and those retiring 05s and especially those retiring 06s, they're very near and dear to my heart for obvious reasons. You know, and those things that you hit upon, you know, people will ask you, well, what do you want to do? I don't know. I want to keep doing what I've been doing and having fun. But I, as I face this question, I think to me it comes down to, well, probably in-house versus a law firm. But then it's what inside an in-house department. And we don't know what we don't know, but talking to people like yourself, it's been compliance work. Someone said as JAGs, we inherently do compliance work. We do investigations, though our investigations or our investigations council differ somewhat in that we're doing disciplinary investigations, HR type investigations, aviation mishap investigations, those kind of things. And then someone told me, you know, general operation legal support where you're kind of playing whack-a-mole with whatever pops up. So do you have any thoughts on those perspectives on what we would bring to the table to an in-house legal department? I agree. I think the types of skill sets that most naturally translate are going to be compliance oriented or legal departments that are having to interface with the federal government or an aerospace defense government contracting the military experience and the familiarity with the government regulations, and not necessarily the specific government regulations, but dealing with government regulations and dealing with government decision makers and approval processes, that's going to be helpful in companies that have to interface with the government. On the law firm side, having experience in civil litigation is going to be more helpful as an example, when someone is coming out of the government, the types of service, the types of government service in the civilian government sector that are normally going to translate best into larger firms are if someone has been, for instance, in the SEC or they've been in the DOJ on civil collections or civil enforcement, civil litigation, or they're specialized and someone is seeking a law firm position that deals with, with that niche. So if it is international trade or OFAC or something like that. So the, the key is for the, the officer to, to be able to look at their experience and then try and individually correlate it as much as possible and narrow down like, hey, what are the areas of work or the types of companies, the types of positions that track most closely with the experience that, that you have? 
and then trying to target those specifically and to tailor your resume and your outreach to the specific job. Because the great thing about a commander or a captain using the, the Navy system is that you're going to have so much experience that you can accurately position yourself for multiple roles that may be different just by highlighting your experience in those areas. And that's why it's so important to understand the job that you're seeking and to make sure that you're taking great care to call out the parts of your experience that apply to that specific job. Because otherwise it can be lost because you have so much experience and it, it may not even be visible or apparent to the reader of your resume. Now I've applied for a couple jobs and I was able to tailor it based on what you were just saying that you, I had broad experiences that I was able to for this job, apply this skill set and this job, I was able to highlight these different skill sets. But, you know, these were for, for individual companies. And, you know, we talked last time about latitude, which oftentimes is providing temporary legal support, if you will, to companies and firms that potentially are sort of a trial period, if you will, that maybe that's not how it's advertised, but it ends up being that. And it sounds like the services that Latitude offers may be sort of that discernment period for a judge advocate coming out of the service. And so if you could talk about sort of the range of services that Latitude provides both to job seekers and those seeking to employ them. Our company, and there's multiple others kind of in this segment that I can mention here in a second, we will employ and provide attorneys for either engagement, you know, essentially contract roles or contract to hire. So it's not uncommon for companies to need interim help. The classic examples are an interim general counsel or an interim assistant general counsel. Sometimes those can be because the position is gapped for some reason. It could be military leave. If someone has gone on deployment or been called to active duty, it could be medical leave, family leave, those sorts of things. And so the company is asking for an interim attorney to step in. It can also be because there is a need, but there is not the headcount within a legal department to create a new position. And so a lot of times people will be engaged and the company is hoping the headcount will be created. And so they're able to bring someone on their team using outside counsel spend. And then if the headcount is created, then they hire that individual, or they've used that as a test drive to find out if that is the right person for the role. So from a candidate's perspective, the engagement type opportunities can be a great chance to get your foot in the door. And this is not just true of military officers, but the classic example that we sometimes see is someone who's been out of the workforce, cared for an ailing parent. Maybe they've had a, a child situation, maybe they've had a medical issue, and they need to then step back in, but they've been out for a period of time. And the engagement work is lower risk for an employer because it's not a fantastic fit then it's simply not extended versus someone getting in a permanent role. And if it's not a great fit, a company having to let somebody go. So there's a lot greater willingness of employers a lot of times to test drive someone. And the same is true, obviously, for something that's known as a contract to hire. As an example, in one situation, you can have an attorney who needs to get fresh skills or get new skills, and they can go in on an engagement basis essentially to get up to speed. The client, of course, knows that a company like ours would be presenting a candidate and saying, hey, here's two normal candidates, normal in the sense of having the more traditional skill sets or background experience. Here is a third candidate that is an out-of-the-box candidate. They've got fantastic skills. They have different skills, but this would be a great opportunity for you to try someone that is different and 
if it's not a fantastic fit, it's only a whatever, two-month engagement, six-month engagement, nine-month engagement. So a lot of times clients are willing to think more outside the box if they're able to not have to make as big of a commitment. And the same is true on a contract to hire role. It's not uncommon at all for companies like ours to present a candidate and they have someone out of the box and the client will be more willing to take a chance on, for instance, how fast someone's going to get up to speed in a new or different role if they ultimately have a very easy out of not going forward. And of course, on the candidate side, that requires risk-taking. It requires a candidate who's willing to do that. It's very common in the, um, in the industry. The other nice thing about it is it is a test drive for the candidate. It's not uncommon for an attorney to want to do something different, maybe to shift their practice area a bit. Like in the case of a judge advocate, they're coming in from a different career field and they think they want to try something, but they get into it. And it's one thing to take a new role. And then of course, you don't, you don't want to just bounce from the role and, and after someone has invested and hired you. And so you see a lot of times people will get into a new role and realize that gosh, this is totally draining and not energizing, but they will stay in that role for an extended period of time out of respect for the, the team that has hired them. The nice thing about doing interim roles is that the expectations are set up front You complete your commitment and it's a three-month commitment or six-month or nine-month. And then if it's not a great fit for you or it's not a great fit for the company, you've completed your engagement and they've completed the engagement they committed to, to you. And it's no problem. If someone's looking back, saying, hey, why were you in that role for three months or six months or nine months? That was essentially a consulting role that you did for that period of time. And so there are a bunch of companies that do this type of work. Obviously, we do it. There's a company called Axiom Law that many of your listeners may be familiar with. They operate globally. They also provide attorneys on an engagement basis in the UK and Europe. And I think they may do some in the United States. There's a company called Lawyers on Demand. They do this, this type of work and there's probably multiple others out there. But for a candidate who's interested in essentially fractional work, interim work, interim AGC, interim general counsel, you could go to those companies' websites and look at the range of jobs that they have. A lot of attorneys, this is the way they practice. They've been in big law. A lot of times they've been in a, a legal department. And if they have in-demand skill sets, they will do these sorts of engagements and just pick and choose because it's up to the attorney. Typically what companies like this will do is they learn about the candidate. The candidate goes into their database. And then as they have a client need, they reach out to the candidates that have the skill sets and say, hey, there's ABC company. They're looking for an interim AGC for X number of months. Would you be interested? And typically the, there's a pay range, but oftentimes the candidate is setting their own pay range. So the, the candidate is telling the company, hey, here's where I want to be compensation wise. I'm interested in this type of role. I'm willing to work on site within this geographic area, or I'm only willing to work remotely, or I only want to work two days a week or whatever the criteria are. And then the companies are presenting the candidates with opportunities that match the parameters that the candidate wants. So that's one way to, to pursue those more fractional or engagement roles. Coming out of the military, again, we don't have to bring up a book of business. We haven't had to worry about negotiating pay. So we don't have the experience in a lot of this. What does a person seeking employment with Latitude or these other companies, what is the cost, if any, to them? 
yeah, there shouldn't be any cost to candidates. And this is true whether you are seeking a permanent role or you're doing engagement work. And a lot of companies like Latitude and a lot of companies will both be asked by clients to provide them with interim talent, consulting attorneys, as well as permanent roles. And so the way our company, and I think many others, and, and the way most headhunters work is that they are paid by the company. They are retained by a law firm or company to, to do the whole process, to do the recruiting process, to do the vetting, to distill down the candidate pool and to present them. And so the candidate in those situations is not paying anything. Now, the flip side about this is that those companies are also not functioning as the agents, so to speak, of the candidate. They are to find the very best candidate for the client. What that means is you as a candidate, for instance, when you're coming in there, the recruiter, whether it's for interim work or for it's a permanent role, is going to be advising you on your resume, on your background. They're going to be gathering information about you, and they are going to be considering you for the opportunities they have, but they probably are not going to be proactively going out. And if you have a list of, hey, here's 30 companies that I want to work with, they're in most cases not going to be saying, great. You know, I'm going to call all these 20 places and see if they're willing to hire you, John Doe or Jane Doe, because if so, they would be doing that constantly with every single candidate. But what they should be doing, and most companies will do, is they're going to get the information, they're going to figure out your interest, your background, your experience, what you want to do, all those parameters, and they're going to put those in their system. And then when they have opportunities that match what you want to do, then they would be reaching out to you, hoping that you would be available. One thing that it's, I think, of critical importance to you as a candidate is no matter who you deal with, whether it's a, just a traditional headhunter or a legal services company, you want to make sure you are in absolute control of where your resume gets sent. What do you mean by that? You want to make sure that the recruiter does not propose you to a company or to a law firm without your express permission. The opposite of that would be a situation where you express interest to a recruiter, you give them your resume. And they just blast it out to a ton of potential employers. In some ways, that might sound appealing at first because you're like, great, I want my resume to land in the inbox of as many employers as possible. The problem is, and the, and the reason you want to maintain total control is because you want to be dealing with a recruiter that is intentionally proposing you. And equally importantly, the, the proposal is tailored to you and to that particular employer. So if someone is just blasting your resume out to 100 law firms in XYZ City, the odds are very low. I mean, it's clearly they're probably not going to be tailoring it to any particular job at any of those places. And the reason that matters is because the way recruiters get paid is if they are the ones, or this is not universally true, but overwhelmingly true, is if they introduce you to a particular client. So if you deal with a recruiter and they've just blasted your resume everywhere and they've not tailored it, and you go to another recruiter who does do more tailored proposals and is proposing you to specific jobs and is making sure that they are pitching you for actual opportunities and doing it the, the, the most effective way, once they realize that you've already been proposed to a whole bunch of places, it won't make any financial sense for them to be able to work with you because where they propose you, they're not going to get paid. And so it's fine to work with multiple recruiters, but you want to make sure that you know where you have been proposed and it's you're only being proposed to particular places. Like in the case of our company, I think a lot of companies like ours, what our recruiters would do is they would ask someone, 
are there any places that you have already applied or already been proposed to? And if so, they're going to be scratching those off the list because they'll know, okay, those are not places that I should be considering for you because you're already in front of them. And that is going to be important. And, and it's why you need to know where you're being proposed because you need to have a list. The other thing is that you want to keep careful track because you don't want to be applying to the same company over and over and over for different jobs because typically they're going to have visibility on that. So if you're applying for one job and then another, the phrase I hear referred to is you're a frequent flyer. It's the person who applies for each job and they're basically saying, I'm great at everything. I'm good at <laughs> and a lot of times that's not what the hiring decision makers want. They want someone who's saying, hey, this is a job I'm really great at. Here's why. And I realize there, there are going to be cases where there's more than one job in a company that you would be a great candidate for. You just want to really be deliberative and think through the message that's going to be received by the company. And so I'm not saying it doesn't ever work. You should never do it. But if you're having the impulse to apply for multiple jobs at the same company, it's usually really good to limit that number and to focus on the job that is probably the best fit for you, particularly if they're very different jobs. I've just seen this backfire so many times, and I can tell you on the receiving end of that, when we have jobs that are very different and the same candidate is applying for very different jobs, it a lot of times will kind of call into question what they really want to do and what their passion is. And I think this can be a particular challenge for judge advocates because your experience is so diverse. You really can pull things from your different tours of duty that you could accurately be qualified for a lot of different roles. And so... I think it probably takes more discipline on the part of a lot of military candidates to really zoom in on what they want to do and to forego certain applications. A lot of times it's going to increase your odds of success. But in terms of finding a recruiter, you want to find someone who's going to know about the client, who's going to tailor your proposal to the client, and who's not going to send your information to anyone that you don't consent to. And it's fine if they send it to a lot of people, if you know about it and you feel comfortable that they're being deliberative. So let's say you individually apply to an employer and they're like, oh yeah, I see you've applied before. You know, and the resume you just sent is tailored and it's targeted towards a particular job. And then you find out someone blasted out the initial draft of your resume, you know, six months or eight months earlier. Whether it's a recruiter or you doing it yourself, it's really important to tailor your resume for a particular role. And if you're like most people, you're probably coming up with a kind of civilianized version of your military experience. Not that it's going to change dramatically, right. but it is good to be able to highlight the experience that's going to be most relevant to that particular role. One of the things that our company does, and I think a lot of recruiters will do, is we have an overview section. And the, the main body of the resume, a lot of times, is going to be similar, if not identical, for multiple jobs. But the overview section that's at the top of the resume is going to draw out the very key things that are specific to that particular role. And obviously, all of it you know, needs to be, as you can imagine, completely accurate. But that way, you're front-loading information, because what we have seen over and over is that clients can read, especially when it's in chronological order. And so they're starting and they say, oh, litigation. We're not looking for a litigation attorney. You know, we need someone who has transactional or regulatory or whatever type of experience. It seems shocking, but you would be amazed at how decisions can be made in a matter of seconds. That if you were there, you'd say, oh, that was my first tour of duty. And, and in fact, I've actually done X, Y, and Z. You know, it's on the second page. And so you want the first thing that they see to immediately be like, oh, yeah boom, he's got that, he's got that, or she's got that. And then they can see your other experience because 
it's easy for someone looking at your resume to typecast you if they're only initially catching a certain part of your experience. So tailoring is really important. One challenge that you may have is what do you do? Do you reach out to a whole bunch of people that are veterans, for instance, in the community? How do you first approach prospective employers? And a lot of this is a judgment call. And I've seen individuals, they'll you know, be getting out, they'll reach out to multiple attorneys and let's say law firms or companies that have been graduates of whatever the Naval Academy, you know, West Point, or they've been in the judge advocate general's court, and they'll kind of send out a bunch of resumes. And in some ways that can be great, but it can also sometimes have the effect that just a blast will have. And so what I encourage people to do is try and find out who some strong recruiters are in your market mm -hmm. and talk with them, get their advice, get their feedback. And ideally you may know someone in the community that can give you feedback on who would be a strong person, but then talk with them about who you know and where you know people. And this is a lot of times what I would do when I was doing the recruiting personally. I would talk with the person and we would identify the prospects that I, like clients that I had. And I would say, great, it's XYZ law firm. Do you know anyone there? Go look at their website, see if there's anyone that you have any sort of connections with, whether it's a veteran connection or you're from, you went to the same school, whatever, see if there's anyone there, you know. And then when I would be proposing the candidate, if they wanted me to be the one to propose them, I would then obviously have their bio, but typically the recruiter will be doing a write-up about the candidate. They'll be giving the backstory. They'll be kind of trying to give your personality, their, your availability. And what I would do is I would say, oh, and, oh, by the way, Tom knows so-and-so or Tom and, you know, went to school with, you know, Jane Doe. They were in the same, you know, college class. So you may be able to get a quick read on Tom from so-and-so. So you kind of tie that together. Sure. And, but if you know someone really well, you can also try and establish a connection with them and get their advice on the internal prospect. I think the more personally you can do that, the better. Like if you just send a blast email out with your resume, that's likely to be less effective for several reasons. One, it'll immediately preclude a recruiter from working with you potentially. It also may not get the effect of getting engagement with that person versus you calling or reaching out or having a mutual connection and reaching out to that person saying, Hey, I'd love to get on a call, or I'd love to get your advice on moving back to XYZ city and doing my legal career. And then you can engage them and realize you're going to actually have a conversation. And that still may preclude a recruiter proposing you to that place, but you're likely to be able to get real insight and that person's able to help you. And if they don't respond at all, you haven't sent your resume. And so you're able to accurately explain to a recruiter that, yeah, you have not applied to that place. And you've, you know, while, while you, you send an email, you didn't provide your resume and won't scratch that firm or that company off the recruiter's ability to help you. And you also just, like I said, you want to keep a list of everywhere that you've applied. How does this work? Say that, I don't know, Tom Welsh decides he wants to try this recruiting angle. And I call up Latitude and I say, hey, I'm looking for jobs. From the sounds of it, it doesn't sound like you just ask for a resume and you shop it around. What is the engagement at the latitude with the recruiter to help try to shape your efforts? 
typically the way engagement starts is they're either applying for a specific job that is listed or they are submitting a general application saying, hey, I don't know exactly what role would be right for me. Or, or it may be because they don't see any current role that appeals to them or they think they're a good fit. And so they're submitting the resume for consideration on any role that would be a fit that's a match for their skill sets. And so what typically would happen, I think this is true of our company, it's true of a lot of companies like ours, that resume then goes into the system. If and when there is a position that any of the recruiters across the country see that would be a match, what they're doing on the company side of it is a client request comes in, hey, we need an AGC for environmental for nine months, or we have a permanent position for new GC, we're hiring for fill in the blank, or we need a new senior counsel at a law firm in the antitrust department, whatever it is, the recruiter, the first thing that they're typically doing is going into the database and searching for people that have the required skill sets. They're looking at that position. They're saying, hey, this is an aerospace company. It's based in California. They're, they're looking at all the different aspects of the job and they're developing a candidate profile. And then they're searching through their company's database to try and identify a list of candidates that they feel would be with, within the scope of the job. Then they're prioritizing those candidates based on who, they, who it looks like just on the paper would be the closest fit. And then they're reaching out to those candidates and saying, hey, you know, are you still available? Are you interested in this? And then typically they're going to be conducting an interview with full scope interview of the person if they are interested and they are available. And then they're going to be taking that information and comparing that with all the other people they have interviewed for that role and distilling that down to a list of finalists. So when you're a candidate reaching out to a recruiter or a legal services company, that's oftentimes the process that they're doing. Sometimes you might look at it and say, gosh, I'm perfectly qualified for this role. And you, you know, may be surprised, like, wait, why didn't they call back or why didn't they propose me? And it's because the recruiter is, might be dealing with numerous or dozens of candidates. And so they're looking at numerous people. And even though it might be surprising that there might be someone or two or three or five candidates that are even more on point than you, you as a candidate may be. And then also, there are oftentimes criteria that may not be apparent in the job listing. The job listing is kind of the wider net. There may be other factors that the client has briefed them on that they are seeking or that would be nice to have that the recruiter or the company hasn't put in their job description. A lot of times, they may not be intuitive. Sometimes it will be personality driven, and this is not uncommon. The, the recruiter is interviewing and they're looking for all the skill sets, but they also have a good sense of the corporate culture. They're trying to think of how do I think this person would fit in with this team or how would they interact with this, you know, this general counsel who, they, who would be directly supervising them. And so they're having to bake all that together to propose candidates, which is why when you're interacting with a recruiter, you're obviously going to want to talk openly and transparently about what you're looking for and so forth. But you also want to consider them as essentially an extension of the company or the law firm that you're applying to. Interact with them as though they are part of the screening and decision-making process. They are evaluating you from the moment that they begin interacting with you from your email communications, your responsiveness how you are on the call. And this is an advantage I feel like the typical candidate from the military is going to have because they're naturally um, highly professional and, and respectful and courteous and responsive. So, but you would be surprised. There are candidates who are highly qualified and trained and, you know, in the private sector who are not 
like that. And that can obviously immediately end the opportunity because they're, they're not professional and, and courteous. Well, that concludes part one of our conversation. Join us next week for part two. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.